We're wrapping up a series this morning that we've been in for the last five weeks, and the series has been called Zero Hour. What will you do? And by that, what we mean is, if you ever came to a place in your life where you had to make a decision between denying Christ or suffering persecution, what would you do? What choice would you make? If you're going to lose your job, if you're going to lose a friendship, if you're going to lose your wealth, if you were perhaps even going to lose your life, what would you do? Would you deny Christ or would you suffer whatever persecution comes for the name of Christ and for the cause of Christ? And I can imagine that if you're new here, if this is like your first Sunday, you might be wondering, why in the world would you guys ever want to think about such a terrible thing? And I think the answer to that is, really, none of us want to think about that. But there are many well-respected Christian scholars, thought leaders, writers, that are beginning to warn that signs of a coming persecution of Christians in America are present and it's coming. Now, whether they're, whether they're right or not, only time will tell. But either way, we're wise to prepare ourselves for whatever comes because Jesus himself warned us that following him will lead to trouble in our lives. And so this morning, I want to finish this series by looking at Daniel chapter 6. We've been in the book of Daniel. We've been looking at four young men who've had to face some severe persecution for their faith in Christ. And so we're going to look at that again by looking at Daniel chapter 6 this morning. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel, uh, you will remember, along with three other men, are Jewish captives. They've been brought over from Israel after Israel has been conquered by Babylon. They were brought over specifically to live in Babylon, to work in the government of the king of Babylon, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. But by the time that chapter 6 opens... There are over a million of, Jew, of these Jewish captives living in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. The Babylonian Empire is no more. And the Persian Empire is now in power with their king, Darius, ruling the throne. Now, so that you can have a structure that you can follow along this morning, three things in this passage that I want to highlight today as it relates to persecution as we wrap this series up. Here's the first one, an inescapable offense. I want to highlight this. The second is an inescapable connection. I want to highlight that. And then third, an inescapable justice, an inescapable offense, an inescapable connection, and an inescapable justice. Let's start with an inescapable offense. Let's read from verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So just quickly, let me just say, what we're getting here is sort of an organizational chart for Darius's government. We really don't know much about what a satrap did, except that from these two verses, we can deduce a couple of things about them. One is that they had power because they were political uh, appointees. And then when it says in verse 2 that administrators were put over these satraps, uh, so that the king wouldn't suffer loss, we can deduce that these guys had something to do with the king's money. That's what it, that's what it means when it says the king didn't want to suffer loss. Maybe they were tax assayers. Maybe they worked in his treasury. Maybe they were accountants. We don't know for sure what these guys did, but we know that they had power, and we know that they had access to the king's money. Let's read on. Verse 3. Now Daniel, one of these Jewish exiles, 
Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him. Can you imagine a politician with no corruption? Anyway, let me keep going. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of God. So uh, consider something with me here. These guys, they want to get Daniel in trouble. And so in order to get Daniel in trouble with the king, they're going to have to do three things. The first is they're going to have to discredit Daniel because of his religion. They couldn't find anything else to discredit him with. So they're going to have to discredit him with his religion. Second, they're going to have to get the king to pass a new law that will get Daniel in trouble because of his religion. We're going to see that. And then third, they're going to have to do all of this against the king's will Because as you're going to see as we read this passage, the king really likes and cares about Daniel. Now that that sounds like a job for a very shrewd politician. And in fact, the only politician that I know that could pull that off, anybody watch House of Cards on Netflix? Frank Underwood. He's the only guy I think that could pull this off. But let's see if they can pull it off. Look at verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king. Of course they went as a group to the king, by the way, because that's how cowards always work in groups. They went to the king and they said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. They set the trap. Does he bite? Yes, he does. So King Darius put the decree in writing. They pulled this off. And here's the thing. These guys are out for blood. I mean, they, want Dan- they don't want Daniel to just die. They want him to die a cruel death ripped apart by lions. By the way, you may have been wondering, like, why lions of all things? Like, why, were they, why, why, did, why was that on the surface of their minds? Well, it's very common for Persian kings to hunt lions for sport. So they always had lions uh, at the ready in case the king wanted to go out and do some hunting. But what I found myself asking as I read this passage is what would cause this kind of hatred among a group of governmental bureaucrats? Like, like not just that they didn't want Daniel to get the promotion that it looks like the king was going to give him. They want him to die a cruel and torturous death. What could inspire that kind of hatred? And then it occurred to me, as I read this passage, maybe you saw it too. Did you notice how their hatred progressed? Did you, know, did you notice the progression in their hatred? Here's what it was. They started out thinking that Daniel must be just like them. 
And so they figure, well, the best way to discredit him is we'll hire a private detective and we'll try to dig up some dirt on him. He's probably cheated on his taxes too, just like we have. Maybe he's cheated on his wife. Some of us have done that. Does he have any interns? Has he inhaled any illegal substances? Any unexplained deposits or withdrawals in offshore accounts? Anything at all? They figure we'll be able to find something on him because he's just like the rest of us. But when they couldn't find anything, they grew resentful. He's not like us. Not at all. And they grew more and more resentful. And you see, this is one of the things that I think you need to understand. If you're, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, you need to understand, as a believer in Christ, that people are going to hate you for being a follower of Christ because you're different. You're different. I said the first week of this series that if you're a follower of Christ, you just have to get over worrying that some people are going to hate you for being a Christian because they are. I don't care how cool you try to be. I don't care how much you try to blend in. I don't care how much you don't act like mean-spirited, legalistic Christian. I don't care how nice and non-judgmental you are. If you tell people you believe in Christ, you will be hated, shunned, and persecuted by some people. Just get over it. It's going to happen. And why are they going to do that? It's because you're different. And by the way, when I talk about the fact that you're different, I'm not necessarily talking about the way you live your life, although that may be true too. But when I talk about being different, what I mean is that you're different in what you believe. And that's offensive to people. And there's nothing that you can do to escape that. Here's what I mean by that. You know, the vast majority of the people in the world are religious in some way, shape, or form. Look, I know, you know, there are atheists, but relatively speaking, atheists are pretty rare. Most of the world is religious. And here's the thing that you need to understand. They don't, the rest of the world doesn't understand the difference between religion and the gospel. Like, they don't get that. Most people would say today, look, all, all religions are the same. All of the religions, whatever, the, whatever it is they believe, all their gods, I mean, they're all teaching the same, the same thing. They all believe in some god, and they all say, you know, not only believe in that god, but obey the rules of your religion, be a good person. And then you'll be blessed in this life and saved in the next. That's what they believe. In fact, if we, were to, if we were to put it in equation form, I've done this before for you. Here's what they would say. Believe plus obey and you'll be saved. That's what religion teaches. But the gospel says something very different. And frankly, what it says is very offensive. The gospel says, first, there's only one God who can save you. Like, like all the gods don't point to the same thing. There's only one God. And he's manifested himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it also says, the gospel says, that obedience isn't part of the equation to being saved. The gospel doesn't say, go be a good person and you can be saved. Go clean your life up and you can be saved. The gospel doesn't say that at all. The gospel says, believe equals you're saved. And then, as a result of being saved, obedience 
being good. It's a product of being saved, but it doesn't earn you anything. The gospel says believe equals you're saved. Therefore, as a result of being saved, you'll obey out of love for Christ. Now, if you think about it, that's very offensive. The gospel is very offensive to the religious person. Because the religious person likes to think that he or she is a good enough person to save himself or to save herself. But Christianity says, no, sorry, you aren't. In fact, your good deeds couldn't possibly cancel out your sins. Jesus had to die because you're such a sinner and you're you're so not good. You hear the offense? A pastor by the name of Sinclair Ferguson He says it this way, nothing is more common and foolish in the unregenerate heart, that's the person who's not saved, than to assume that God is satisfied with a life in which we compensate for our sins by deeds that we wrongly assume cancel out our sins. See what he's saying? Good deeds don't get you anywhere. And he says it's foolish to believe that. Why? Because it denies the necessity of the cross of Christ, which leaves a person in his or her sins, which then puts him or her in jeopardy of an an eternity apart from God. And that is inescapably offensive. You You just can't avoid it. Now, some of you do avoid it. Some of you are never in danger of persecution because you never speak about your faith in Christ. Nobody knows that you believe in Christ. It's time for some of you to speak up, frankly. Then there are others of you who feel like you're always experiencing persecution and hostility because you enjoy fighting with people and you tend to be argumentative and obnoxious about what you believe. Listen to me. Nobody's persecuting you because of Christ. They just don't like you. That's the problem. Here's what I want you to hear, is that no matter how kind and compassionate and cool and laid back you are about your faith, some people are going to hate you because Christianity is inescapably offensive. Get over it. It's different than other religions. You just need to understand that. And someday your belief in Christ may well put you In your own personal zero hour, what will you do? Will you deny Christ so that you can avoid persecution? Or will you stand for Christ no matter what comes? Christianity is inescapably offensive. People are going to hate you. Some people are going to hate you and persecute you because you're different in what you believe. Okay, I want to move on. Let's move on to an inescapable connection. I want you to see this. There's so many things we could highlight in this passage, but I only have time for these three that we're going to talk about today. This first one we've already talked about. Here's the second one, an inescapable connection. Remember now that the edict uh, that was... Uh, the edict that was given here was not to pray to another God or another human other than Darius for 30 days. By the way, why 30 days, do you think? See, I think it's because if they would have presented Darius with this, like, you know, hey, 
don't let anybody pray to any other God or any other human but you for like a year or more, I think Darius would have scrutinized this more. But when they said 30 days, what's 30 days? You know, it's not a big deal, not a whole lot to lose. So he's like, he lets it go, lets it pass. They were shrewd. Verse 10, now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. In other words, he'd always done this. This wasn't like something new, something he'd always done. Then these men went as a group. Of course, they go as a group. Why? Because they're cowards. And they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Skip down now to verse 13. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, by the way, I think that's a little racial and religious prejudice there. They said that he pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel. And he made every effort until sundown to save him. And he appealed to the Supreme Court. And he was like, I got to save it because he likes Daniel. But he couldn't save him. So the king gave the order. And they brought Daniel. And they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. And a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. Does this sound like the resurrection to you? And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles. That sound like the resurrection to you? How the the tomb was sealed? So that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and he spent the night without eating and without any entertainment. Read girls. Without any entertainment being brought to him. I mean, it wasn't Netflix. And he could not sleep. Now, at first, like when you read that Daniel marched, you know, right up to his place and he opens the windows and he prays out in the open for everyone to see just as he always did, it probably feels to you like he's got this, you know, swagger that it's like in your face, dude, I'm not afraid. You do what you want. It doesn't change me. Not my edict. That's what it probably feels like he's saying. Very individualistic, very American. But it's actually the opposite of individualistic. Daniel is doing this out of a commitment to his people. Remember, there are now over a million Jewish people living in Babylon. Daniel is the most prominent of all of them. If he buckles in fear, many of them will too. If he allows fear to control him or the threat of persecution to scare him from doing what he's always done, undoubtedly many of the Jewish people will too. And those who do end up continuing to pray will be killed. And so Daniel understands there's a lot on the line for his people. And so Daniel makes his prayers very public, just as he always has, out of identification with and commitment to his people, the Jewish people. He asks God for help, the text says. Help in what? To be strong, I'm sure, regardless of the threat. To deliver him from the lions, I feel certain. To encourage and strengthen all of the Jewish people, that would be part of it. But some of you might be thinking, look, he could have prayed quietly. Like he didn't have to pray visibly so that everybody knew he could have just prayed in his heart, couldn't he? 
Why not do that? What would be wrong with just compromising what you believe just a little in order to spare yourself the pain of persecution? What would have been wrong with that for Dan? What would be wrong with you? If you face your own personal zero hour sometime, what would be wrong with just compromising a little bit what you believe in order to spare yourself from the pain of persecution? What would be wrong with that? Here's the answer. What's wrong with that is that the effect that it has on the rest of the body of Christ. You know, we live in such an individualistic culture that we think that what we do or what we don't do, it doesn't affect, it doesn't hurt anybody else. It's nobody else's business. Heard that so many times from people as it relates to sin. What difference does it make if I do this? It doesn't hurt anybody else. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, I'm fine. Oh, but it does hurt someone else. Do you not understand that? Do you not understand that there is an inescapable connection between you, if you're a follower of Christ here today, and the other people who are followers of Christ in this church this morning? An inescapable connection between us. Everything I do, everything you do, good or bad, affects someone else. You ever heard of the butterfly effect? Raise your hand if you've heard of the butterfly effect. Okay, so you know what that means. It means that, you know, like one small thing that somebody does here starts a chain of actions or reactions that affects more people around the world than you could ever know. Listen to me. If you're a follower of Christ, you are not a lone ranger. Whether you like it or not, you are connected to people. And as a follower of Christ, we're repeatedly told in the, New, in the New Testament that we have an obligation to one another. I have an obligation to you. You have an obligation to me. I have an obligation to all of you. You have an obligation to everyone here. Listen to the Apostle Paul. You are your brother's keeper, by the way. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Galatians. He says, bear one another's burdens. And thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Or the writer of Hebrews says this, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's saying, everything you do or don't do affects the rest of us because we are called brothers and sisters in Christ. You're part of a family. The moment that you trust in Christ, you become part of a new family. That's how close we are. That's how, that's how much what you do affects me and what I do affects you. And so if you let fear buckle you in the face of persecution, if you compromise what you believe in order to avoid persecution, someone else will be affected by that. Do you know how discouraging that is for other believers? When one believer compromises what he or she believes, buckles in fear in order to avoid persecution, It's so discouraging. Now, I'm going to use an example of this inescapable connection that you might as well be prepared to get offended and angry about. But I want you to trust me that I only say this because I care about you. And I mean that as sincerely as I can, and I hope you believe that to be true. I I genuinely care about you. I am dumbstruck, gobsmacked, floored by 
the cavalier manner in which many of us here at City Church choose to attend and not attend church. And I have to tell you that this is a topic of conversation among our staff. Now look, don't you dare accuse me of being a legalist. I am not a legalist. And if you've been around here for any period of time, you know that I hate legalism. I realize that there are times that everybody has to miss sometimes. Like there are things that are just unavoidable. I get that every once in a while. But I think that I've told you before that the average person at City Church attends church 1.8 times a month. 1.8 times a month. And I just have to be honest with you, that's appalling. And here's why. Because you can't worship without sacrifice. You, you just can't. And so when you go to the trouble to come to church on a rainy day when it's inconvenient, or when you go to the trouble to come to church on a beautiful day when you could be doing something else, or when you're tired and you could sleep in, or when other families with kids, your kids' age, are away at travel sports leagues, when you choose to come, you're doing three things. One, you're testifying to the people who are around you in your life, your kids, your family, your friends, your neighbors. You're testifying to them that you believe Christ is alive and worthy of worship no matter what the cost to you because of what he did for you on the cross. Second, you're testifying to the rest of us here that we're important to you and that you need us in your life and that we need you. And third, to the outside world, when a person drives by a church full of cars and full of people heading in joyfully to worship Christ, as a body of believers corporately together, we testify to the reality of the living God and how important that the living God is to us. It's what we do when we come. But if that's true, the opposite is true too. When you don't come, you testify to the people around you, your kids, your family, your friends, your neighbors, that worshiping Christ is only important when it's convenient to you and when it doesn't cost you anything. One of the reasons that many young people, millennials, are moving away from the gospel. Because frankly, they've been taught by their parents for many years. There's a lot of stuff way more important than the gospel. Like soccer games. Baseball games. Vacations. I'm not against taking vacations. Don't hear me say that. But there's a lot of things more important than the gospel. Second, you're telling us as a church body that you really don't need us. We don't really matter. You're fine without us. And third, you're saying to the outside world that Christianity just isn't that important. 
You can't worship without sacrifice. And listen, you can't be cavalier in your attendance at church and not have an effect on the other people here. Sorry, you just can't. There is an inescapable connection between us. There's a personal cost to your cavalier attendance. It affects you, even though you think it doesn't. It affects you. But there's also a larger community, family cost to your cavalier attendance too. And I know what you're going to say. I already know it. I've been doing this for a long time. I know what you're going to say. That's why we have a podcast, Jeff. And when I'm not here, I catch up through the podcast. Hey, that's not why we have a podcast. So that you can just skip. That's not it. We have a podcast so that the sick and the infirmed and the people who just have to miss for some unavoidable reason every once in a while can hear the sermon. And we have it too so that people who are outside of Christianity can hear the gospel. But just listening to the podcast alone in your car or or when you're on your treadmill, uh, that's not worship. In fact, one of my questions is, why in the world would you listen to a sermon when you're on a treadmill? That's a whole other thing. I don't listen to sermons when I'm on a treadmill, I promise you. You can listen to a TED Talk alone, and that's fine, because there's no commitment to the other people there. But corporate worship of the whole body of Christ, it's different. There's a commitment. There's an inescapable connection. And when you miss... When you miss, it says a lot more than just that you chose not to be here. And let me tell you something else. If persecution should ever come to your life, if you should ever find yourself in your own personal zero hour, you're going to need us. You're only as strong as the church that's around you. You will only be as courageous as the people that are around you. You're going to need us, and we're going to need you. There's an inescapable connection between you and the rest of the body of Christ. Uh, one last thing on that, one last thought on that. Do you, you guys know uh, what a pride of lions does when they want to attack a herd of, I don't know, say, antelope? You know what a pride of lions does? Um. Most animals test their potential prey for weakness. But that's not what lions do. The only weakness that lions are looking for is isolation. If they can remove a single animal from its herd, dinner is served. Now listen to this. One of Jesus' disciples, Peter, he wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 5, 8. He said, your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. What does that mean? Just like a roaring lion, he's looking for people in isolation. He's looking for someone to devour. And if your faith is going to survive in the midst of persecution, or any trouble for that matter, it will only survive as you strengthen yourself with the rest of the body of Christ. Okay, let's move on. Let's finish with this. This passage points us to an inescapable justice. And I want you to look at this, verse 19. At the first light of dawn, does this remind you of the resurrection? Remember at the first light of dawn, remember the women ran 
They just raced to the tomb. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They haven't hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. You know, remember it said just a few minutes, do you remember it said just a few minutes ago that, that the king couldn't sleep at night, that night? I think that Daniel got a better sleep than the king did. They've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you Your majesty. The king was overjoyed, and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. There is an inescapable connection. When you sin, other people are affected by it. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Pay close attention to that. This story began with a million Jewish people being in danger of a horrible death if they practiced their faith. But because of Daniel's faithfulness, at the end of this story, because of his commitment to his people and his identification with his people, at the end of the story, the king has now declared that those Jewish people can practice their faith freely without fear of persecution. There is an inescapable connection between what you do and what you don't do and the other members of the body of Christ. Let me close with this. Here's what many of you have been taught about this passage of Scripture over the years. Like if you went to Sunday school when you were a kid and maybe like the teacher, you know, like if you're as old as, you know, uh, Paul Kleinconnect, one of our elders in this church, uh, you probably saw flannel graph. You know, remember flannel? Anybody remember flannel graph? Raise your hand. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember flannel graph. I've just been told about it, but I'm just saying you might remember flannel graph. The teacher put these, you know, they put a little thing of Daniel up there, a little kind of flannel graph, flannel graph figure of Daniel and they put a flannel graph figure of the lions, right? You were taught in Sunday school that the moral of this story is this, that if you're good and you will trust God, he will take care of you too, just like he did Daniel. Nothing bad will ever come to you if, you will just, if you're just good and if you trust God. Not a scratch will come upon you. But that is not at all what this passage is teaching. That's not Christianity. In fact, let me tell you something. There was someone who was more innocent than Daniel and who trusted God a lot more than Daniel, who was also thrown into a den, and who also had a stone rolled over him. And I also know that he was filled with wounds. There were all kinds of scratches on him. There were all kinds of terrible things that happened to him. No. This passage isn't here to teach you that if you're good and just obey and trust God, that everything will be okay. This passage is here in part to teach us about the inescapable justice of God. It's all here in this passage. On the one hand, at the end of this story, Daniel's persecutors are thrown into the lion's den and killed. God wants 
Christ followers to see that there will come a day in which all of the persecution that has been meted out to God's people will one day be accounted for. There will be a day in the future, God wants us to understand, when the blood of the martyrs will be avenged and a day of justice for all of the persecution that has been brought upon God's people will come. There is an inescapable justice. But on the other hand, this passage was put us here also to point us to Jesus Christ, the real Daniel, who went into the real lion's den and who went before the real lions of the justice of God and who got the punishment that we all deserved and who was ruined and who was torn apart by the justice of God. Why? Why did he suffer the justice of God? Because it was the only way for sinners like me and you to be saved from the wrath of God's justice. It's here to point us to the fact that there's no avoiding the inescapable justice of God. God's justice has to be satisfied. Your sins, my sins, have earned his wrath, and they have to be paid for, either by you or by Jesus. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus chose to pay the price of your sins by dying on a Roman cross, not by affirming your goodness, but by dying on a Roman cross, the offense of the cross. There is no promise here that you won't experience pain or even death for your belief in Christ. None at all, but there is this. If you believe that Jesus bore the wrath of God's justice for you and that God raised him from the dead, then you can face either life or death with joy and confidence because God will deliver his people. The same God who delivered Daniel from the lion's mouths will also deliver us in his way and in his time and even through death if that's what comes to you. If you find yourself in your own personal zero hour sometime in the future, If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, know this, that if you keep your eyes focused on the cross, if Jesus Christ saved you from the wrath of God, if he delivered you from the wrath of God, there's nothing he won't save you from and nothing that he can't deliver you from, even death. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, none of us will ever face what you faced. None of us will ever have to experience uh, the wrath of your justice if we believe upon you, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you that you willingly chose to suffer uh, the wrath of God for us because there wasn't any other way. If we could have been good enough, if we could have believed in some other God and that would have been fine, you would have said, fine, do that. You wouldn't have died on a cross. But you died because there was only, only one way for our sins to be paid for, and that's through your death on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that Christianity, that the gospel is not about us trying to clean up our lives. Because we could never do that. We could never cancel out our sins by being good. Thank you that you accept us as we are. The gospel is for broken people like me for people who aren't good for people who can't believe perfectly all the time 
gospels for people like me and people like those that are here today. Lord Jesus, we worship you. It's been a tough series. Lord, we pray that the freedom that we have to worship without persecution would continue in this country. But if it doesn't, Lord, would you give us courage? Would you give us strength? Would you keep our eyes focused on you? Because we know that if you delivered us from the wrath of God, there's nothing that you can't and won't deliver us from. We pray this morning for those in other parts of the world today who are facing persecution, some who are imprisoned, some whose lives are being threatened. For their faith in Christ, Lord, would you give them courage? Would you give them strength? And would you keep their eyes focused on you, Lord Jesus Christ? Would you give them the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding? And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray.